According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures, and we are going to be in uh, Exodus uh, 33, where we were on uh, Sunday morning. Of course, questions and answers may take us elsewhere. But we're talking about uh, young men that uh, grow up and enter into the ministry. And uh, Joshua was one of those young men. So that's where we'll be. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the truth of His Word. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for tonight, for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have to assemble together. And Father, we thank You for um, Your faithfulness, day after day, month after month, year after year. Father, we thank You for this year. This is New Year now. Father, the sun's gone down. It's Happy New Year to the Jewish people and the Hebrew calendar and uh, year 5778, as uh, as they counted anyway. And uh, just look forward to seeing what You may have in blessing the nation of Israel and uh, continue to hedge her about and protect her against all of her enemies. Father, uh, work in our political leaders as well to be supportive of uh, the Jewish people because your word has promised that you would bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. So Father, we want our nation to be lined up for blessing and uh, we're asking for that as well. And now Father, tonight as we assemble to receive instruction, we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. You've uh, brought us in some very deep, deep areas here lately, Father. And so uh, I pray that uh, you'd keep us, uh, keep our eyes where they need to be. Teach us from your truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. We had one item of old business, which I realized, man, this goes back weeks. And it was uh, a question that uh, Chuck had. So if, um, maybe I'll hold off in case he comes in late. Oh, okay, then I won't hold off. The question, what is the kingdom of heaven? And uh, uh, it just caught me out of left field. I'm surprised, and I wasn't really prepared to give an answer that night, and, and I feel bad about that. I should have been ready to give an answer for that. But um, but on the other hand, um, it is a topic that opens itself up to a lot of confusion and a lot of abuse. And so I'm glad that I did take the extra time to to put a better answer together than I would have just given extemporaneously or off the top of my head. In fact, uh, depending on who you're talking to in the church they go to, the kingdom is a big deal. And the kingdom is something they're constantly talking about. And everything you do, you're doing for the kingdom. And everything that you do, um, and then they're basically equating the kingdom with biblical Christianity, with, with the spiritual walk here and now. And, and so I want to make sure that we're solid on it. The kingdom of heaven isn't here yet. All right, Jesus Christ is still seated at the Father's right hand as we've been seeing in the book of Hebrews. Now when He comes, He will bring the kingdom, as it were, that He will take His seat on the throne of David. That, uh, but until then, you know, we're still praying, you know, Thy will be done, Thy kingdom come uh, on earth as it is in heaven. And so uh, we're not there yet. And we're not yet in the millennial kingdom uh, in, uh, in that. So anyway, um, I guess the simplest definition of the kingdom of God is God's personal presence on this earth and ruling in the affairs of man in a very direct way. 
And that was the that was the announcement John the Baptist made when the when the John the Baptist came he said repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that's because the Messiah had been born the king was uh, ready to be presented to Israel and had they not rejected their king guess what the kingdom was at hand and it's it's very much a possibility in the what if scenarios that had Israel accepted their Christ then that would have launched the kingdom right then and there see uh, but we know they didn't. They rejected the Christ and He was crucified and He rose again and He ascended to the Father's right hand and that's, that's where things sit right now. So um, we just want to be clear on that. And I think it, it's similar to the studies we've also done on the New Covenant. I think the New Covenant gets abused a lot by people that keep trying to inject the church into that or, or say that you know, we're party of the New Covenant and so forth. I think kingdom is, is likewise similarly abused. In, uh, it's not a synonym for the church age. It's not a synonym for New Testament biblical Christianity, not at all. It is the future coming kingdom when God Himself walks this earth and rules politically over, uh, over the affairs of man. And so that, that requires second advent, requires Armageddon, requires the millennial kingdom and, uh, and, uh, and aspects there. So anyway, that's, uh, that was a standing question and uh, I'll let that go for now unless there's a follow-up to that. And then I'll get with Bill, or not Bill, but uh, with Chuck and uh, make sure that, that he hears this answer that I'm giving here tonight. So, All right, so we can take fresh questions then if the microphone's ready to go. And we'll start with Bill there in the corner and then we'll, then we'll come across to this side. <laughs> Very tactical of you to sit next to the microphone guy. I like that. I wasn't expecting him. <laughs> okay. Um, my question is about archangels. Uh-huh. And um, from what little study that I was able to do, um, there's only twice that archangels is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, from my understanding, they're both in the Greek, the archangelos in First uh, Thessalonians and in uh, Jude 9. When I went back into the Old Testament... It has Daniel ten thirteen and Daniel twenty one one where they refer to Michael as the chief uh, prince, and I think the other one as great prince. Right. Uh, so my or Daniel qu- twelve Daniel twelve one. Yeah, I'm sorry. What did I say? Um, anyways, so so my question is basically is this: There's only from my from my from what I gather, there's only one archangel mentioned. In all of Scripture, mm-hmm. which is Michael. Now, I've heard some people imply that, you know, Lucifer was an archangel, of course, which is not true. And then, like, Gabriel was an archangel. Mm-hmm. But so am I correct in, in what I've discovered that there's only one archangel mentioned in, in all of Scripture, and that's Michael? That is correct. As far as the canon of Scripture is concerned, Old Testament, New Testament, what we accept as the God-breathed and inspired Word of God, then Michael is it. He is the archangel. And um, one of those Daniel references you mentioned did mention uh, uh, Michael in chapter 10, Daniel chapter 10, one of the chief princes. But see, in the Hebrew, we've got... It's Hebrew, it's not Greek, so it's not archangelos. I mean, the Septuagint translated it into Greek. Uh, but in, Matthew, in Daniel chapter 10, he's called one of the chief princes. That seems to indicate that he has peers. But, um, and Daniel 12 says, Michael, your prince, and that's a singularity. And then uh, Jude and First Thessalonians, it's all singular. The, the Lord himself will descend with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. 
and the dead in Christ will rise first. So um, biblically speaking, I'm okay with saying Michael is the one and only archangel, although there were other chief princes as per Daniel chapter 10. Now, extra biblical literature, the Greek, the uh, Jewish Apocrypha and some of the other things, First Enoch, if you're a big fan on Enoch, um, then there are Jewish legends that speak of seven archangels, all right, and which includes Michael and Gabriel, uh, a fellow named Raphael, who I don't know if he painted or not, but an archangel named Raphael, uh, Uriel and Samuel. I used to have them all memorized, but I, I, you know, that's not Bible. That's just legend. That's just apocryphal. And so, uh, and since the Holy Spirit didn't inspire it, what kind of spirit inspired it? You know, you know? so I'm not quoting it and I'm not going there and I don't hold it reliable in any, in any way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I had another question, but I okay. lost it. Uh-huh. So <laughs> all right. come, come back around and it comes back. And then we can cross the aisle. Our next question over here, I think, uh, did Jim, did you have one? Or, or either Jim or Lewis. Somebody had their hand raised. It was Lewis. Okay. There we go. Uh, Doug and I were talking in, in an interesting... Uh, we were looking at Matthew... Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Luke 9. Uh-huh. And it says, He sent the twelve out uh, and gave them power and authority over all the demons and healed diseases, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Well, Judas Iscariot was one of them, correct? Yes, he was. And so... Uh, he did this, but he wasn't a believer. That's, that's correct also? Uh-huh. So what does this say about the relationship of Judas and where he was and all that? And why did he bother following Jesus in the first place? You know, things that... I don't know. I mean, we can, we can speculate or imagine or whatever. But yeah, he was not saved, and, and Scripture can prove that. And yet this text says that he was counted among the twelve. He had his share in the ministry with the eleven who were saved. Um, one thing I would say, though, is I think that's uh, compatible with other ministry patterns in the Old Testament, for example. You could be a Levite, you could be a priest, you could be the high priest and not be saved. Uh, nothing in the Old Testament demanded that you had to be saved in order to serve in one of those Old Testament capacities like priest or Levite um, and so forth. And so I don't really see it an obstacle. God can give the Holy Spirit to an unbeliever if he chooses. Now, this isn't a pattern for church age spirituality in any respect. Uh, and, and the way I see it too, if, if, if a donkey can preach Bible class, then, then an unbeliever can cast out demons if God gives them that kind of authority. So that's kind of how I look at it there. But that's a good observation. A lot of people don't, uh, don't catch that. He's included in the 12 there in that. All right, other questions. Oh, we're crossing the aisle again up here. Shall not be named, but her hand is waving. His or her hand is waving. I'll figure the her out. Okay. Okay, so on uh, Numbers 1130, 11 whatever. Yeah, 1129, Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Um, Would that all Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Isn't that similar? Because he was of the same attitude as Paul that we're studying in Philippians when, they, when they, he said, yeah, I don't care if they preach, let them all preach, whether it's from good purpose or bad mm-hmm. motives. Isn't it the same? Yeah, I, I, you could take it that way, sure. Yeah, it's a similar idea that, hey, it's great, the, the more the merrier, you know, <laughs> greater glory for Christ, the more that are spirit-filled, the more that are preaching, it's uh, not a problem. 
Yeah, I think, I think Moses would be very much uh, in agreement with Paul that even if it's for the wrong motives, Jesus is still being proclaimed. So Moses would be rejoicing right there with Paul. Okay, because that's the way I saw it when you were teaching it last week, which will mm-hmm. probably hit again this week. But Okay. No, I like it. All right, and then we'll return to the back row again for our finale. Anything else tonight? All right, double portion grace blessings. Don't know how I forgot this question, but this goes back to uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, uh-huh. um, where it talks about uh, Christ uh, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the arch, uh, archangel, and with the trumpet of God. I heard one person, or I read one person teaching, of course, complete fallacy that, well, this is evident that Christ is not actually God, but an angel, um, because he refers to the voice of an archangel. Um, could you explain that uh, to us, what, the, what it means uh, with the, the shout with the voice of an archangel? Well, it doesn't say that it's his shout, and it doesn't say that it's his voice, but those are events that coincide with his descent. So he himself does descend. I think he has an angelic escort. I think that there's a military honor guard that uh, serves to uh, accompany him to the atmosphere. Um, Larkin wrote about how uh, there'd be a great battle there to clear the landing zone, if you will. Uh, You know, like in Vietnam when you had to clear the landing zone for the choppers to come flying in. Um, that Michael and the, and the elect angels would go in and clear the, the air because the prince of the power of the air would be hostile to uh, the rapture of the church and, and the great genuflex in the sky, that kind of a thing. So no, it's, it's not, uh, it may not even be the shout of the Lord. It may not be the voice of the Lord. It could be that the shout and the voice are one and the same and both belong to Michael and uh, the trumpet of God as well. Uh, maybe Michael's blowing that trumpet, or maybe God's blowing the trumpet, or somebody else is blowing the trumpet. It doesn't really say. And I think to, to build a huge argument based upon stuff that's not said is, is pretty tenuous at best. So, uh, and, of course, if you sing the Hook'em Horns Longhorn song, then it's Gabriel that blows his horn, right? So that's, again, not theology. It's not coming from this verse, but it's uh, something else. So anyway. You could kind of look at it as, and maybe this is wrong or right, but, you know, in medieval times you know there was always a trumpet blast in so a forerunner that pronounced the coming of the king mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be so this could be you know just as simple as that as well could be as simple as that as well yeah all right thank you mm-hmm. all righty if i did not get to you tonight i apologize we'll try to get you next week or you can shoot me an email in between slides show up and running here. This is our doctrinal study on calls to the ministry. There we go. Calls to the ministry, a doctrinal study from Philippians 1. And uh, this all jumped out of uh, our first chapter there when we saw uh, believers for right reasons and wrong reasons that were entering into ministry. And a whole crowd was emboldened to get busy with preaching. And uh, but some of them had bad reasons, and so uh, retaining motivations, and that's, uh, I think that's an important study. We moved on to uh, the development, and we've had three developments, actually. Uh, we've covered the first already, the principles of ministry calling, and uh, you might remember there were five of them. I'm not going to reteach them tonight, but here they are. We don't call ourselves, so 
If you're thinking about calling yourself to a particular ministry, just stop that right now, all right? Just uh, stay faithful, stay preparing, stay available, and then uh, be obedient when God calls you. That's the key, all right? We don't promote ourselves, we don't call ourselves, but when God calls, we better obey. We better be ready to go and, uh, and do that. Uh, ministry callings may entail a departure from temporal work, or they may not. So if God calls you into full-time Christian service, realize that may be in place of your secular work, or that may be in addition to your secular work. But uh, full-time Christian service is what uh, He may call you to uh, on that basis. Uh, and He also may move you. Ministry callings may entail a geographic relocation. And so you've got to make sure you're good with that, that you'll go wherever He wants you to go. And you know, don't create that list. And certainly don't draw a line in the sand and say, Lord, I'm going to go everywhere except here, because God's got a funny way of uh, taking you exactly to that one place you said you didn't want to go to. And uh, so don't put, tempt the Lord put the Lord your God to the test. And also make sure that your spouse is on board with this as well, you know, because you don't want to uh, just, you know, boldly go forth to the mission field in, in Mozambique and find out that, uh, that your helpmate wasn't going and, uh, and doesn't go. So uh, understand that too. Ministry callings may entail a geographic relocation. Uh, human qualifications are largely irrelevant, that uh, it's God who gives us the qualifications. Our adequacy is from God. And there are not many mighty, not many wise, according to the flesh. And then finally, ministries are assigned based on faithfulness. Stay faithful in little things, and He will entrust you with bigger things. And that is uh, so, so key. And we see this again and again, Old Testament, New Testament alike. Ministries are assigned based upon faithfulness. And ministries are forfeited on the basis of faithlessness. And we're going to see that. And the conclusion to this study is going to include some warnings against ministry and uh, some, some dangers if uh, you enter in on, a, on the wrong basis. So we'll deal with that as well. We moved on to our second development, which is uh, Roman number two, subpoint B, illustrations of ministry calling. And if you remember on Sunday, uh, we got through with the first one and a half because we spent a lot of, bit of time talking about Moses. And uh, what's Moses the illustration of? A couple of things, really. First of all, Moses illustrates a prideful, premature non-calling. And when Moses called himself or took it upon himself to go kill that Egyptian and try to you know, deliver his people, um, Moses wasn't ready for that. And the people weren't ready for that. And God had not called him to that. And so it was very premature. And that's uh, kind of normal for us humans because we're, we're impatient and we're, we're, we're uh, temporal beings. Um, but he was just about 40 years too early, right? And so we want to be aware of that and understand that our time is not God's time. His ways are not our ways, and uh, we want to understand that. Uh, but that's the prideful, premature non-calling. And it happens a lot. I think it happens with young men. That's why the warning is given uh, in First Timothy about not laying hands on a man too hastily and, uh, and share the guilt there. If the young man is still too prideful and he's got to be humbled before he'll be ready for ministry. And then Almost like a flip side, uh, the second illustration of Moses is the reluctant, resistant calling. Forty years later when the, the bush finally is burning, right? He, he encounters the burning bush and now he's filled with nothing but complaints about why he can't do it and why he doesn't deserve it and why he's no good at it and why you know, other people would be better than him kind of a thing. And so uh, when you read chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, I mean how many times can you not take a job when God's the one calling you to that job, see? And uh, so that's, uh, that's a good lesson as well. Don't be 
prideful and jump in too early, but also don't be uh, resistant and reluctant and fail to jump in when, uh, when that's what God's calling you to. All right. And so from Moses to, uh, to uh, Joshua, we go from one generation to the next, and this is good, going from the old man to the young man. I like this. I think this is an important pattern. And uh, we had this in Exodus 33, 11, Numbers 11, 28. Just a kind of a passing reference in Numbers 11, but it's telling that he was Moses' attendant from his youth. All right? And um, Numbers eleven twenty eight. 28. Joshua, the son of Dun, the, uh, the attendant of Moses from his youth. And so if attendant, if that seems kind of insulting or demeaning or small or somehow that's uh, degrading and, and that's beneath you or whatever. No, realize God may use that in some amazing ways. And so be thankful for that in, uh, in different things. And, and uh, I'll never forget hearing uh, Tim LaHaye talking about when he was a teenager and he ended up getting volunteered by his mother, uh, but he was so thankful for it because it was a Christian camp that he was volunteered to serve in. And the the, the leadership of that camp was by Donald Gray Barnhouse. And so uh, here's, here's Tim LaHaye as a teenager getting exposed to uh, a tremendous older man from, you know, decades prior. And uh, anyway, can you imagine getting, getting your, your first taste for ministry in a, in a venue like that, seeing, being able to tell that story uh, in later years? So, and then when I heard Tim LaHaye tell that story. He was 80-something and I was in my 30s and it made a big impact on me in, uh, in hearing that story. So when we're going from the old man to the young man, we see this and uh, some of the exuberance on the part of the young man like uh, Joshua and his buddies that uh, wanted to stop the prophesying from happening in uh, Exodus 33. And um, anyway, there's, there's other things there. Uh, then Timothy. I want to move on tonight and talk about Timothy because that's our second example, and I fixed the typo on the screen, so thank you for that. Um, but Timothy's another one, a young man, probably 10 years old, okay? And we're just guessing how young he was uh, when Paul picks him up uh, at the beginning of, of Acts chapter 15. So how young must he be? And, uh, and so you do your New Testament studies, you do your harmonies, you, do, you kind of put together a, 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 a sketch, you put together a calendar or a framework and start to kind of plot things on there, all right? And however you do it, there's, there's some, some good ones out there and some problematic ones out there. But I think we can, we can, we can pinpoint certain things based upon uh, data that's, that's very firm, okay? So Felix and Festus as governors in, in Judah, we're very firm on that because we've got Roman records that testify to that or, or Gallo, the proconsul of Corinth. We're locked in on a, on a great date for that because we've got, again, we've got secular records that, that pinpoint when they were appointed, things like that. Uh, and so we create a harmony, we create a calendar for the New Testament. And uh, in any event, so you, you kind of target when Timothy was first called to travel with Paul and then, what, 61 or 62, when, when do you date the writing of 1 Timothy, all right? In the early 60s. Uh, I think everybody's within a five-year window on the dating of 1 Timothy. Um, and in that book, Paul says, let no one despise thy youth. All right, well, okay. So, you know, how young is he? 12 years younger than that, right? So you kind of count backwards and say, well, now, wait a minute. If he was still young enough to be despised in 1 Timothy, how much younger was he 
in Acts 15. See? Anyway, those kind of things. So um, when Timothy comes, 1 Corinthians 4.17, he's going to remind you. When Timothy comes, he's going to remind you. And uh, reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you know, and if you're just starting out and you're young and you don't have your own material to work with yet, great. Don't use your own material. Use, use the old man's material. Use something else. Just, just learn and teach what you've learned. And uh, I find that interesting. All right. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4.14 says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. And so whatever other teachers and leaders and apostles and other folks they've had passing through Corinth from time to time, uh, they could always point back to the Apostle Paul when this church got planted, when this church got started, when most of them got saved, or at least when they got converted across from being Old Testament believers to New Testament believers. And so he says, therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. And for this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Okay, Now isn't that interesting? What he's wishing they would become, in verse 14, is what Timothy already is and already has been for some time, in verse 17. Do you spot that? Because you have beloved children, right? Agapetos, beloved. And so as beloved children, that's what he wants the Corinthians to be. And Timothy already is. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child of the Lord. He will remind you of my ways. Okay? Now that's teaching, that's content, but it's more than that. It's application, it's practice, it's tradition, it's mindset, it's everything that, that Paul would think of as his ways. He would remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. And so they might be prideful, and they might think that they're older and Timothy's a kid and what can they learn from him, but really, Timothy's ideal. Because how much traveling has he done? How many different churches has he seen, right? I mean, he's seen the Galatian churches, he's seen Troas, he's seen Philippi, he's seen Thessalonica, he's seen all these places, he's seen Corinth, and uh, the places that Paul's gone to since Corinth, he's seen Antioch, he's seen Ephesus, all right? And uh, he's, uh, he's very well suited to share these things. Anyway, Timothy here is an illustration of the blessings of preparing in one's youth to carry the ministry into the next generation. And so don't despise the youth. And uh, uh, Jesus certainly didn't. Uh, the disciples tried to keep the little kids away and Jesus said, what are you doing? Jesus said, uh, you know, allow the children to come unto me for such is the kingdom of heaven. And uh, aspects there. All right. Now some have become arrogant. Let me just finish out chapter 4 here. Some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. And see, that's going to be a problem. That arrogance is going to keep them from being blessed by Timothy's ministry. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. All right. So there we have it. Philippians chapter 2, another example here of Timothy. And uh, advancing to the top of his class. I hope this is an encouragement to you. If uh, Sometimes it's a young man that starts training for uh, ministry when he's 10, and sometimes it's an older man that's in his 40s or 50s already, but whatever the case, 
when God calls you, He's going to use you. Philippians 2, verse 19 says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Timothy is going to be able to do two things. He's going to be able to go to Philippi and minister there, and then he's going to come back from Philippi and minister to Paul. He's going to return from Philippi and encourage Paul so that Paul will be encouraged when he learns through Timothy of their condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That is a powerful statement. You know, ask yourself, who do you know? Who's your closest friend on this earth? Who do you know? All right? That's of a kindred spirit. Who do you know that, that is so like-minded with you? In, in spiritual things I'm talking about, all right? We're not talking about secular things or earthly whatever, okay? That's the thing. And in human terms, you know, there's people that you kind of have an affinity with because of whatever. Who knows? You know, you're, you went to school together, you were college buddies, or you, you used to be in the workplace or whatever. You know, you like the same sports team or you vote the same way. You got similar politics. I mean, you, you can find different things, um, you know, part of your golf quartet or whatever you're doing, okay? But in spiritual things, where do you find the affinity? And where do you find the like-mindedness? And would it shock you for a 60-year-old guy to find an affinity with a teenager, okay? To have a like-mindedness there, see? And that's a good thing when that happens. It's a powerful thing when that happens, all right? You know, Ralph uh, Braun was born in, in 1934. So do the math, you know, the, the years between between him and me. And then just, I love that man. It's amazing how he, uh, everything from, from training to, to uh, introducing me to Sharon and <laughs> officiating our wedding and all, I mean, just everything. And, uh, and I really think that that whole model, that Paul and Timothy model is what Ralph attempted and, and succeeded in uh, creating when he created his training ministry. So that's the, uh, that's the idea. All right. And he says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. That's powerful. Now, he, Paul doesn't name names here, but we can go to the book of Acts and we can correlate. <laughs> we, can, we can track based on the other epistles that he wrote at the same time. We can track based upon greetings that he gives at the end of this epistle and greetings that he gives at the end of Colossians and Philemon and, and uh, Ephesians. We can uh, track based upon the greetings that he gives in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians uh, and in Romans, for example. We know who his traveling companions are. It includes such people as Luke and Titus and Aristarchus and uh, Archippus. I mean, there's a lot of people. Demas, okay? He flamed out later, but he was solid here, as far as we know, all right? Other, other people that, uh, you know, we're not critical of them. They, they eventually grew to the point that they could serve, but when this chapter was written, none of them were ready. None of them were ready. And that's, uh, I think that's powerful. We've got we to gotta recognize that. I think that goes well with um, what we warned about in point one, about the prideful, premature non-calling. If the young man thinks he's ready to go and take a pulpit and the old man says, eh, wait a minute, <laughs> all right, uh, this is Paul's capacity to identify Timothy's suitability and everybody else's unsuitability. All right, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his 
proven worth. And that's why we take so much time. Every time I get a chance, I'm teaching you Dakimazo, and you're tired of hearing Dakimazo. But that's what it is. Okay? Perazzo is tempting, and Dakimazo is testing, and we all have to be tested so we all can be approved. And Timothy passed his Dakimazo testing. That he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And uh, that humility demonstrates the servant heart that's required. So therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. All right. So that's uh, again Joshua and Timothy illustrating the blessings of preparing in one's youth to carry the ministry into the next generation. And uh, and I like that. I like you know spotting that when uh, when they're young and just keeping an eye on them and trying to encourage them and encouraging their parents and and different things. Ken Jensen encouraged my parents to pray for me and and then he made them swear not to tell me a word about it because he didn't want to be a, an undue influence or to prejudice anything. He wanted the calling to come from the Lord or not some kind of a phony expectation from his from his perspective, see. And so I thought that was interesting. All right. Uh, thirdly, here's another illustration. How about David? Let's go to 2 Samuel 7. David illustrates how a divergent background can be marvelous ministry preparation. You might think that your past has wrecked everything, that your past has left you not really well suited for ministry, when it could be just the opposite, that God is going to use your past in good or bad or in between or whatever else, but whatever that background is, for David he was a shepherd and he was the runt of the litter. He was the youngest of all those children. And yet that was perfect. <laughs> as far as God was concerned, he was able to call David a man after his own heart. So 2 Samuel 7 and verse 8, there's other references we could bring into this as well. I think the I like looking at the call when, when Samuel goes to Bethlehem and the oldest firstborn comes in and he's all impressed and and then the next one and the next one. He goes through all of Jesse's sons and still hasn't found the, the right one yet. And uh, that's a fun chapter. But, um, you know, is this it? Are you out of sons? Uh, you know, I'm not seeing him yet. Well, yeah, the, the one you're not interested in. We haven't brought him in yet. Well, bring him in. And he was the one. Okay, he was the one. Anyway, Second Samuel 7 and verse 8. Um, this is... Uh, this is the chapter when David wants to build the temple. And um, nothing wrong with that. It was a great idea. It was just not the right generation. It was too soon. And um, David in verse 2 is talking to Nathan, the prophet. So he's in fellowship with the Lord. He's in fellowship with the Lord's prophet. They're uh, like-minded and talking together. And the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within ten curtains. And it was bugging him. David said, man, I got this great house and the Lord's tent's kind of shabby. And you know, I don't, don't like that. That doesn't seem right. So Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. And you know what? I like that verse. I think that's a great pattern. I believe as a general rule of thumb, as a, as a principle, if you're in fellowship and being taught by the Word of God and, and walking with the Lord daily, then yes, the desires of your heart are what He is shaping you to pursue. And you can trust that. Say, Father, I'm like-minded with you. This is on my heart. I want to do this. And then relax when He shows you uh, 
Nice idea, but no thanks. <laughs> okay? Nice idea, but I got a better plan for that. So I'm going to tell you no on this one. So uh, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and say to my servant David, bad idea, don't do this. Okay? Isn't that great? That very same night. But God didn't speak up until David was on the verge of, of going and doing something he shouldn't have been doing. See, so trust that. Trust that God will overrule. Trust that God knows what He's doing. That uh, you might have a marvelous idea. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Thank you. I'm glad you had that idea, but it's just not right at this time. And so if we're humble before Him, then we're pleased to say, hey, not my will, but thine be done. Thank you, Lord. I appreciate you keeping me from making that mistake. All right, so go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? The fact is, he's already got somebody in mind to do that. It's part of the works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? This is Solomon's work assignment, not David's. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. And he says, I've been fine with that, I'm not complaining. All right, there'll be a house built eventually, but just not yet. All right. So, wherever have I gone with all the sons of Israel, did I say, did I speak one word with one tribe? Did once, just one time, one word with one tribe? Did I ever say, build me a house? All right. Why have you not built me a house of cedar? All right. Then, verse 8 Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. That's the point. And it might not make sense at first. And it might only make sense later on. Because you might be thinking, hey, you know, um, this isn't really getting me ready for anything. It's getting you ready for everything in God's plan and God's design. And uh, so we can rest confidently in that. Uh, God's got this all worked out. Again, Ephesians 2, we're saved unto good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When God saved you, He's got a whole laundry list of things He expects you to get done between now and glory. And that's, that's our blessing to be obedient as He makes clear what those things are. Verse 9 says, I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. You know when David killed that lion and killed that bear, he's just a little kid with a slingshot far as we know. I mean, that's what the movies show anyway. And, uh, <laughs> but he's just a kid and he killed a lion and he killed a bear. Protecting sheep that weren't even his anyway. You know, I mean, I know what I would have done. I guess, Sorry, Dad. Um, you know, I did my best. You know, I saved five of them. The lion got two, but you know, that's not, that's not too bad. Okay. Anyway. And my dad would have said, oh, never mind. Um, <laughs> But David wasn't doing that. David was tending sheep not his own and serving faithfully in his father's house. And this is what was equipping him to be shepherd over the people of Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off your enemies from before you. I'll make you a great name like the names of great men who are on this earth. Has that ever been fulfilled? Not yet. Not yet. I, de- I, I defy you. Search every secular history in the world and they'll talk about Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great and William the Conqueror and all these imposing figures of history. And when it comes to David, well, 
it's a myth. It probably wasn't a real David, and the Jews just kind of invented that as a part of, you know, trying to retroactively justify their uh, oppression of the poor Palestinian people whose land they stole. There's no. Uh, they will. Not, they will tell you there was not a historical David, not a historical Solomon. That's all just myth. Okay, and you cannot find secular history that exalts King David as the greatest king to ever walk this earth. But he was, because he's the only man Scripture calls after God's own heart. So, um, I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. That, that is waiting second advent fulfillment as well. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord also declares to you in the Lord that the Lord will make a house for you. And so the house of David is established here as promised. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, this is the seed of David promise, who will come forth from you, I will establish his kingdom. And this is the whole Old Testament foundation for what is preached in the New Testament as the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, expressed here through a Davidic king. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Anyway, this is what we have here. An illustration how a divergent background, something different. Something different. You don't have to be steeped in politics all your life to run for president. All right? You may come from a totally different background. Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72. Psalm 78, which is a lot of ways like a, it's a walk through the Bible. So you work your way through the chapter, you get a, you get a uh, history of God's faithfulness and Israel's faithlessness and <laughs> time and time and time again. And uh, in verses 70 through 72, it highlights here the Davidic promises. Uh, verse 70 says, He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes and the suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. Shepherding is what equipped him, equipped him to do this. And I find that interesting. All right. Um, Jesus. Jesus, Luke chapter 2. Like Moses, Jesus illustrates a premature non-calling. I didn't call it prideful, like I called Moses was a prideful premature non-calling. Nevertheless, it is a premature non-calling. But humble subjection until the true calling is revealed. And this is Luke 2, verses 41 through 52. Another good illustration, similar to uh, these others that we've seen. Luke, Luke chapter 2. And boy, I can get lost in this chapter. Look out. <laughs> All right, I, I don't remember how many. We, we taught this, obviously, in the Life of Christ series and uh, over several Wednesday mornings and several sessions because there is so much to dig out of this. The, um, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. So a child learns right from the youngest of ages what 
is done in their, in their parents' house. And uh, this is the, in the case of parents that are God-fearing and observant and humble before the Scriptures, okay? Every year, going, uh, going to the appointed feasts. And you might imagine, you know, the cost of travel. What is it, what is it you know, it's not like you just hop on Southwest Airlines and fly, you know, to wherever you're going. Uh, You've got to travel, and it's going to take days or weeks, depending on how you're coming from, from Nazareth to Jerusalem, all right? And uh, all that time to travel there, all that time to observe the feast, all that time to travel back, all that time you're not working because they weren't, you know, Carpenter doesn't telecommute while he's doing, the, doing the, the feast in Jerusalem. But the children are learning from that young age that this is what our family does, okay? Same thing happens here. Your kids are learning, hey, we are a Christian family. We go to church. Sunday is what we do. This is what our family does. And we learn from the youngest of ages. The children learn from the youngest of ages. And I appreciate that. All right. Verse 42, And when he became 12, then they went up there according to the custom of the feast. But see, now he's 12. Now he's reached an age where he's going to start to participate in his own generation from his own priesthood, or his own, not priesthood, but his own volitional standpoint of participation. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, um, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. And I'll tell you, right then and there, my, my son just got grounded. <laughs> All right? But that's because my son is not Jesus, okay? Um, he's not sinning here. And he's not out of the will of God. He's never out of the will of the Father, but he has a perspective that he has to get adjusted, and the Father's going to show that to him here. So he stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. But supposed him to be in the caravan. I mean, he's got to be around somewhere. This is a large caravan, family and clan and tribe, and you know all the uh, a significant body of people traveling back to where they were going. And besides, he's always been a good boy. They didn't have any reason to suspect him anything bad was happening here. But they went a day's journey and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. You know, you stop for the night to get your first night camping and, and uh, he's not there. Now they've got to go back. Okay? It's going to be a whole second day to go back. It's going to be another day looking for him. So um, that's what we see here. So they didn't find him. They returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, how about that? Gone for three days and then reappears. Um, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Isn't that great? Okay. You lose track of your kid. Where's he going to be? You know, <laughs> at the video arcade. Simple. Yeah. Playing pinball, video games. No. How about in the temple, learning doctrine? Asking questions. I like that. And um, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And these are the seminary professors. These are the, these are the, the scholars. And uh, these are the guys that are used to not being impressed by disciples and their questions and answers. And they're impressed by this kid and the answers he's given them. So what does that tell you? I think it tells you a lot about Joseph. It tells you a lot about his father and the doctrine that he had and the uh, upbringing that Joseph and Mary were able to bring to, uh, to their children. Anyway, when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, 
Don't know why Joseph's silent at this point. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Now this next verse is what I think defines the whole process and and proves the point. Illustrates the premature non-calling. Similar to Moses and his premature non-calling. It's too soon. Or David and his premature non-temple building. Okay? Great idea, but it's too soon. So he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Fair enough question. He wasn't expecting them to be looking for him. Wow. You were looking for me? Okay. He didn't know that. Does that bother you? Some people that bothers. Because Jesus is God and he's sinless and he's perfect and, and, and he never sins, but can he, be, can he make a mistake? He never sins, but can he err factually? based upon a finite understanding. He didn't know that they were looking for him. And he didn't know why they were looking for him. Why is it you were looking for him? See, remember in the kenosis, we're going to study kenosis in chapter 2 of Philippians. In kenosis, Jesus lays aside his privileges. He doesn't stop being God, but he sovereignly chooses to never exercise those omni-attributes. Not once, ever. Okay? Not even in a high school final exam. Okay? He took all his midterms, all his finals, took all of his tests, all of his academic tests. Never once did he cheat. Tap in a little omniscience here, write down the right answers. Okay? You know what I would have done. Anyway, but here he is, and he doesn't know. That's the point. He's premature and he doesn't know. And he realizes that they don't know either. So did you not know? Why is it you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house or about my father's business? Did you not know? And so what's built into that is you did not know. And Jesus is admitting, I didn't know that you didn't know. Right? He says that right here. I didn't know, but you didn't know. Oh, wait a minute, didn't you know? Well, if you didn't know this must not be right. You know, what happens if something's done apart from your consent? What happens if something's done without your awareness, without your knowledge? Scripture says it becomes de facto compulsion at that point because you didn't have the option of obeying or disobeying or agreeing with it or not agreeing with it or glorifying God or not glorifying God. The whole thing was just ripped out of your hands because you were oblivious to what was happening. And Scripture says, I'm talking about Paul in his book on Philemon there, that if it's not with full, informed, volitional consent, God doesn't want it. So he says here, did you not know? Obviously they didn't, that I had to be in my father's house. But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. So yeah, he's confused, they're confused, he's confused because they're confused, and, and, and this isn't getting sorted out. Not in this verse. So what does he do? Well, when in doubt, what do you do? Okay? If you don't have a faith conviction, that's fine. Wait until you have one. Just give that to the Father and say, Father, I don't have a conviction on this yet. And I don't want to proceed if it's not on the basis of faith. I don't want to proceed if just on the guess, on the hope, thinking that, well, maybe... 
Okay. So he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. See, when the Father promotes you, he'll promote you. And when the Father calls, it's going to be clear and you're going to know it. And your parents are going to know it. Your spouse is going to know it. Your pastor is going to know it. Your friends are going to know it. Your deacons are going to know it. All right? Because they will have been praying with you all this time leading up to that. And so when the answer comes, everyone will see it and everyone will rejoice. It's not going to be something out of the blue when you look around and he's not in the caravan. Well, where'd he go? Oh, wow. Okay. You're a pastor now. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, you took a church where? Oh, okay. You see what I'm saying? These things are all done in community. They're all done with believers, with brothers and sisters, and we're loving one another and praying with one another and serving one another. And if the conviction is not there, it's all right. Slow down and wait. Watch. Because if it's not of faith, it's sin. And you can't proceed forward doubting. So, his mother treasured these things in her heart. See, she had things she had to learn too. And for whatever reason why Joseph stays silent, he might have been sick. Because this is the last time we see him anywhere in the Bible. He probably died shortly after this. Who knows how sick he was. And you can imagine, they get back to Nazareth, they finish the journey and whatever, and he dies shortly thereafter, and then here's Jesus thinking, wow, good thing I came home. There's work to do. You know, he's got a, he's got a mother now to take care of. He's got at least six younger siblings, four or five younger siblings, right? Four boys, two girls, minimum. And uh, we don't know how many sisters. It's just they're called sisters, plural. So that could be two or 50. But there are four boys that we have names for those boys. And without, without Joseph around, who's, who's feeding these guys? Okay? All right. So, um, he continued in subjection, Mary treasured these things in her heart, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. So even if you think you're ready now, guess what? You can still grow. There will be more growth. There will be more growth. You will keep growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. And then when he calls you into ministry, everyone will agree and uh, the baptizer will dunk you in the Jordan River, and the Holy Spirit will come down like a dove, and the Father's voice will say, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus will smile and say, All right, this is the time. I, I'm, this is right. Okay? And it should be that obvious in our application as well. Let me grab um, Romans 14 while I'm thinking about it, because uh, this is a text. I know a lot of us are wrestling over these things. Okay? Um, Romans 14, 22 and 23. You know, if you're puzzling over a thing, a, a job offer, or a relocation question, or a ministry opportunity, or, or whatever, okay? Maybe there's a girl you like and you think you want to marry her, or whatever it might be. You want to make sure you're in the will of God. And the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. If you're walking by faith and you're coming to a conviction, praise God. But if the conviction has not yet happened, in other words, if it's still an open question, it's still, it's still uh, uh, the, the decision is not yet reached, it's still in, in uh, suspense, then leave it there. Happy, Makarios, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. 
When you're in the will of God, nothing can talk you out of it. And you know you're where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing. Right? If, uh, but if you're not in the will of God, or if you don't know, if you're just kind of winging it and hoping it works out for the best, that's not biblical Christianity. That's the Polish mind detector. All right? And that's not the Bible. So the faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. The default is if you're not sure, don't do it. Because he who doubts is condemned. Because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. So if you're proceeding on a, well, I hope this is the best thing, uh, wishful hope, okay, that's not elpis and it's not pistis, it's not faith, it's not hope, it's not biblical, you should be convicted and you should be happy because you're making a faith decision. Whatever is not from faith is sin. And so there is the principle. I think Jesus illustrated that well. When he realized that his parents weren't on board, then he realized, well, wait a minute, maybe I'm incorrect. Maybe I'm too soon on this. Maybe I need to stay longer in my parents' house. And then he learned, yep, not time yet. You've got 18 more years to go. He'll be over 30 by the time he stands at the River Jordan and gets baptized. So, principle there. All right, we'll come back on Sunday because we've got to talk about the apostles. And we've got fishermen and a tax collector and a bounty hunter. Um between Peter and James and John and Matthew and Paul. Um, yeah, we got a, a, you know, numerous varied illustrations because callings are not always the same. Ralph's calling was different than my calling. But he had an old man that helped him see his calling and I had an old man help me see my calling and Samuel had an old man help him see his calling. Samuel kept getting woken up every night by the angel of the Lord. He kept running in there thinking it was Eli calling him and Eli was getting mad because this kid kept waking him up at night. And then finally Eli figured it out and said, wait a minute, the Lord is calling you, right? And that's, that's to me, that's significant because Eli was not a hero. He was, he was a piece of work. He was carnal more often than not. And yet it finally sunk into his head, not because it was a great spiritual insight. He was just tired of getting woken up every night. You know, the Lord's doing this. The Lord's doing this. So we'll see the numerous varied illustrations. And then uh, after the, uh, that fifth illustration, we're ready for the dangers and warnings of ministry calling. That's our third development. The dangers and warnings of, of ministry calling. Okay, That's what Jack Blakely hit me with. Pastor of Portland Bible Church when I was 21 years old and told him I thought I was going to be a pastor someday. He looked me right in the eye and says, don't do it. <laughs> you said don't do it. Okay? And I'll finish that story on Sunday. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for old men. Thank you for their wisdom. For Jack Blakely, Father. He's with you now. He's been with you since uh, six months after he told me that. Father, uh, I thank you for him. I thank you for Ralph Braun, for John Eichmann, for Emil Schmidt. Father, for Glenn Carnegie, for R.B. Thiem, for uh, Hugh Crowder, for Todd Kennedy. Father, I can just keep going and going and going. Faithful men, John Miller, thank you, Father, for faithful men. And uh, they set the example uh, because they were imitating Christ. And uh, we want to learn from that. 
So Father, open our eyes to these blessings. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.